Why don't we um, now pray? We're going to jump right in, and uh, we are really going through a series that's called "A People in a Play, A People in a Purpose." And I'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment here. But let me pray first, and then I'll talk a little bit about what we'll be looking at specifically this morning, and we'll jump in. So, uh, once you all bow your heads, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in. God, thank you for your presence that's here. Thank you that we can humble ourselves before you and turn our hearts to you, and that God, you respond, you. You come, you reveal, you bring a sense of peace and hope. Um, so thank you, God, that we can, we can run to you. We can be transparent with you. We don't have to hide in our shadows or our shame. We can literally just know that you will receive us because you love us and you cover us and you carry our shame for us and our guilt and you remake us. And so we, we look forward to what you're going to do in our hearts even right now. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's jump right in, and uh, I want to start basically with a statement. So next slide, um, just kind of a, a central thesis that I want to kind of throw out. So central to what it means is what I wrote. Central to what it means, if you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that would love to get your Bible. Uh, central to what it means to be a human is our capacity to love, celebrate, and promote. I'll unpack that in a moment, so let me repeat it. Uh, central to what it means to be human is our capacity to love, celebrate, and promote. In other words, one of the things that distinguishes us from the animal kingdom is, as far as we know, animals don't necessarily truly love. They might express a certain instinct, affection, or whatever. I mean, I, I, the, the line between your dog actually loving you and just sort of acting instinctively because you give it a bone um, is, is, is debatable. But the fact of the matter is we do know that as human beings, we have this capacity to actually love, to celebrate that thing which we love and then once we celebrate or enter into it, we want to bring others into it as well. You guys following? Does that make sense? So let's, let's, let's go on. Next slide. I'll talk a little bit about um, what we are doing and what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. So right now we are in a, a week two of a series that we're basically saying looking at our vision and values. Um, question that I think we can naturally ask is why? Like why are we doing this? So typically as a church, we take books of the Bible, we study them. Read them verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's our typical, uh, normal routine. Right now, we are taking a break and doing something a little bit different, more topical, more thematic, and looking at these things. So why? One is so that we would reinforce our collective sense of calling, identity, and motivation as disciples of Jesus. It's a way to kind of recalibrate, to reinforce who we are, a sense of identity, um, a sense of calling, realizing that we are God's people, and our motivation, like why do we do what we do um, as disciples of Jesus? And then the second thing is so that we would remind ourselves of the very real possibilities of drift. In other words, every one of us, you may start out, and you, the longer you go through life, the more you realize good intentions are oftentimes not good enough, right? How many of you start out with good intentions on a diet? You're like, I'm really going to lose 10 pounds. And by the time you're like pound two, you, you forget well, what's happened? You drifted. Like, you just drifted, right? You, you gave into you know, chocolate JoJo's and you drifted. Before you knew it, you ate the entire sleeve of Fig Newtons. Like, it just happened. You drifted. Like We have this propensity to drift. We do the same thing with Jesus. Um, we, we may learn certain aspects about the gospel and about Jesus, and yet we have these intentions. We're like, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to be a light for him wherever I'm at. And then what happens is we, we drift over time. We just we drift. So before you know it, um, the problem with that is, is, is before you know it, we've already drifted. We've already forgotten our identity. But what typically happens 
If you're not one of the millions in America that is just like, I'm done with church, I'm not going to go to church anymore, and they, they kind of create this people group they call the nuns, which they don't have any affiliation and whatnot, it is the other opportunity, the other side of the coin, where people just go through the routine of going to church, and doing the movements, doing the actions, but their heart's really, really far from God. So if you were to ask them, why do you do what you do? Like, why do you go to church? I, I don't know, like... Um, I don't have anything better to do on a Sunday morning. Um, like, why do you read your Bible? I, well, I don't read the Bible. Like, if I were to read the Bible, like, why? I, I don't know. My grandma guilted me into it. I don't really know. So what happens, we end up doing things. We don't really know why we do it. Um, that is a recipe for despair, by the way. Like, like you, um, despair in any context. So if, if, if you're ever going to be involved in a relationship, uh, for example, like marriage, and you find yourself just doing routine things, and you don't know why you do it, um, at some point, we have a term for that. You fall out of love. Well, in the Bible, um, book of Revelation, Jesus says uh, of a particular group of people, he says, you guys have left your first love. But one interesting thing about that community that he writes that to is this is a community of people that were doing lots of good stuff. They were feeding the poor. They were gathering together. They were teaching the Bible. They were uh, withstanding against false doctrine, false ideas, false notions that were circulating in the ancient Roman world. Yet Jesus says, you're going about all these routine activities, yet your hearts are really far from me. You've drifted. So, again, why, why are we doing this? One, to reinforce our collective sense of calling, identity, motivation. Second, so that we would remind ourselves of the very real possibilities of drift. So let's jump in, and uh, next slide, uh, really kind of take a look at, we'll recap uh, briefly, like what we looked at last week. So here's this cool little diagram, and the very center of the diagram is, is, is front and center of who we are, who we want to be. We are a community of people that is centered on, on Jesus and the gospel. Like, Jesus and the gospel, it, we could say, are, are synonymous. Jesus is the good news. We looked at that last week, so I won't go through that message again. But what we want to say about this is that it's front and center of everything that we do. So outside of that, everything that kind of spawns off from that is, is linked or connected to the reality of Jesus and the gospel. So in other words, Jesus and the gospel will inform our sense of what it means to be worshipers. So worshiping and devotion and whatnot. Jesus and the gospel will inform how we do community together. Okay? It's really important to understand, like, like if Jesus and the gospel does not inform how we do community, guess what happens? We simply break up and hang out with people that are just like us. The reality is, that's no different than the world. That is no different than the world that we live in. The, the gospel communities should be communities of people that are radically different. Like, to where you can sit down and say, I have nothing in common with y'all except Jesus. Like, if, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't even hang out with you. Because we are so radically different you're rich, I'm poor, you have a different skin color. But because of Jesus, I love you. So the gospel, Jesus, inform everything we are. Gospel and Jesus inform our training and mission and so on. So we'll talk about these over the next consecutive weeks. So, go, sorry, go back one more time. Let me reiterate this. This is a little statement of what we like to say about who we are as a church. Like, we are a community of people being transformed by Jesus. That's who we are. Uh, to love God, love others, and live on mission as participants of the good news or the gospel. Like, not just observers, not just people that give money to uh, an elect group of elites. We call them pastors or staff members or whatever. We're all gospel 
people, we're all people, all of us, every one of us in this community we call Calvary Slow are called to mission, called to ministry. There may be some that are gifted by God to be pastors or teachers or leaders or whatever, um, but all of us, we, that's what we want to share is this collective sense that every one of us in this church are called to be uh, missionaries and part of the ministry of what God's doing here. And again, we'll unpack all of this over the next few weeks to come. So next slide, um, I'll kind of summarize something that Jesus summarized, or actually I'll let Jesus summarize it and I'll just reiterate it. Um, so the backstory of this is Jesus is basically um, being talked to by a bunch of religious leaders. So he's oftentimes engaging with a lot of broken, hurt people, but he's also engaging with religious leaders that were part of the system. And so this one religious leader comes to Jesus and he's asking him, like, summarize for me the sum total of the law and the prophets. So if you know anything about ancient history, Jewish history, you know that there are some 613 laws that the people of Israel were to follow. It's quite a bit. Um, and how do you know which ones you're you know, abiding by and which ones you're actually breaking? So um, rabbis were always kind of asking this question. How do we summarize? Like, how do we summarize? How do we synthesize all this data, 613 bits of information into kind of a unified form of, of, of you know, principles and ideas and commands that we can actually live out? So that's what they do. They ask Jesus, says in the beginning of the story, Matthew 12, Verse 28 says, a religious leader came to Jesus and they asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So Jesus helped you know, us you know, refine this. Jesus then answered, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So Jesus is actually quoting, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, he's actually quoting from a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy um, in the Old Testament called the Torah. And it's actually called the Shema. Uh, the word Shema is actually taken from the first word, which says, hear, hear, O Israel. So the invitation of Jesus um, and of Yahweh before this, when God spoke this, is to hear. It's a way of saying, here, listen up. And, and this, this is basically a way to put in a replacement of not hearing. Um, rather than uh, this, uh, disbelieving or not being able to have open heart, open mind, what Jesus is inviting, he's saying, now listen, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Because it's, it's words of life. It's words that will, if you uh, choose to live according to them, will give you life. So Jesus says, listen to what I'm about to say. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And the invitation, first of all, is to love God. It's kind of a radical uh, invitation. And if you know anything about world religions, uh, you know that there's a lot of religions out there that are formed by a particular guru or leader or somebody who is a, who is a sage or prophet. And they oftentimes have all sorts of great uh, information or rules or paradigms or principles to live according to. But one of the things that you will seldom hear. So, for example, in first century uh, Rome uh, and Roman culture, you would never hear anybody describe your relationship to Zeus as a love relationship. You would never hear say, "Just, just love Zeus with all your heart. You know, love the goddess Diana. She's awesome. Um, but the reality is, is Yahweh is unlike any other God. Yahweh is unlike any other God. And his invitation is not to just simply abide, though there is obedience. It's not just simply to fear, though there is a healthy respect and fear of the living God. But it's actually an invitation to love, to love God, to love God. In order to have love, you've got to have the sense of, of relational connectedness. Uh, it cannot be at a distance. It's, it's got to be some sense of proximity. There's a closeness. And God's invitation via Jesus here is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, 
being. The idea is the sum total of all that you are, from the, from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, the sum total of everything that's in between, that you love this God with all that he is. And then he goes on to say in verse 31, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the, the implication here is love of God, love of neighbor, which is where we get the idea that we are tran- we're, we're disciples seeking to be transformed as people to love God and love neighbor. So that's really significant to us because Jesus says there's no other greater commandment than all this. This is like the sum total of what it looks like to really truly be a disciple of God, to love God, to love those, maybe put it in another context, to love those that bear his image. In fact, it's so intense that John... The beloved apostle, later on in one of the three epistles that he writes, he, he says, if, if we claim to love God who we cannot see, right? Anybody see God today? Didn't think so. If we, if we claim to love God who we cannot see, and yet we despise or dislike or discriminate against his image bearers who we can see. Anybody see another human being today? Yes, we all did. If we cannot love them, then what John says is we're actually lying. In other words, we can rightly call into question the veracity, the authenticity of our love for God if we have grudges or anger or vindication or vengeance towards other people. That there's an incongruency there. And it's what Jesus is saying is that the greatest is sum total. The way you can summarize all this is love God, love neighbor. And as you do that, and Jesus would later go on to say, it's, this is all part of what the kingdom of God is, is about. God's kingdom comes and transforms how we view God, our relationship to God, if you can think of it this way, this vertical level, and how we view our neighbor, which is this horizontal level. It transforms and informs how we respond and relate to all this. So, that being said, let's, let's jump on and begin to take a look at some of this. And uh, let me go back next slide. I'm going to repeat what I just said at the very beginning. Uh, sorry, go back to that, that pink one. Sorry. So central to what it means to be humans, our capacity to, is, is our capacity to love, celebrate, and promote. So back to the subject of worship. Because love for God is really what it means to have value or worth, claim worth or value. So the invitation is to come, love God, turn your back on other loves that lead away, lead astray from God, and love Yahweh with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And the invitation is to really love God. As you love God, you will celebrate him. As you celebrate him, you will naturally promote him. So, again, like always, C.S. Lewis has a far better job. It does a far better job at communicating stuff that I can't. So I'm going to read the next slide. It's a great quote from him. He says this in Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes our enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. They delight, the, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Then he says this, in summary. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. To, to enjoy fully is to glorify In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So think about this. So sometimes we we wonder, like, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, C.S. Lewis says it means to enjoy him. What does it mean to enjoy God? It means to glorify him. So as you enjoy God, 
you're actually glorifying him. What it means to glorify God, it means to actually enjoy him. These things are one in the same. So, again, going back to the, the, the central thesis is that all of us, one of the things that is central to our humanity is that we will ultimately love, celebrate, and promote that which uh, we value in this life. That's just who we are. We will all, we, the, the, the Bible's word for that is worship. We will worship that which we think is of greatest significance or greatest importance. So with that, I want to jump in to take a look at how this is kind of informed for us as a community. Because again, the big question I'm really trying to ask and try to understand is, what does this look like for us as a church, as a community of Jesus people here on the Central Coast? How, how do we worship? What does this mean for us as individuals in this local congregation, in this community? So I want to look at really two things and then make some summary ideas and then we'll wrap this up. So first of all, I want to just simply look at a personal context of worship. So this is kind of the, the, the obvious one. A lot of times when we talk about worship, and we've talked about this a lot in the past, we focus primarily on the idea of personal worship. So I want to make a couple statements about that. And Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I think does a really great job of kind of unpacking what this type of worship really is all about. That we are transformed as we worship God. In other words, as we give our hearts, our lives, our devotion, our love, uh, we find God as the source of our celebration, our delight, uh, then we are transformed. Um, I've said this many, many times before in the past, but really all of our issues in life, all of most of our problems, our challenges, our difficulties, our hardships, our struggles, our forms of slavery, oftentimes always can be traced back to a worship issue. A worship issue. Here's what I mean. So I was talking with a guy earlier this past week. We were talking about the subject of porn, porn addiction. It's a big issue. It's a big issue in today's culture. It's a big issue, I guarantee, many in this church gathering right now struggle with. Some of you would even say you're actually a slave to it. You cannot break out of it. And it bears a lot of deep shame, a lot of deep grief, a lot of deep worry of somehow being found out. But the reality is it's there. It's there. It's right here. It's right in this room. And, and the reality is the question is why? Why is it there? Why do we keep going back to it? One of the ideas that we, we were talking about is I says, you know, in some ways it's kind of this strange reality because on the one hand it's a cycle. On the one hand you feel this sense of like drawn to it and it's your heart leaps like I want to do this. I jump into it. And then once you're in it, then you feel trashy. You feel slimy. You feel, why did I do that? So you go through this cycle of love and excitement and then sliminess and grief and shame and frustration, and over and over and over again is a cycle. That, I said you know, to him in describing this, I said, that, that's, just, that, that's like the definition of insanity. Like, loving something and then feeling slimy and doing it over again, loving it and then hating it, loving it and hating it, loving it and hating it, and never breaking the cycle. So the question is why? Well, the answer, in short, um, there's, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of complex ways in which you can dissect this, but the short, simple way I would describe it this is that because it's a love issue, it's a worship issue, we are drawn, people are drawn, our culture is drawn to pornography because we love the human body more than we love the creator of the human body. We're more emotionally stimulated by the human body than we are the creator of the human body. We're more titillated, more tantalized by the human body than we are by the creator of the human body. Now, I realize this is intense, but you just got to think through this. This is, this is the issue. This is really what it boils down to. We love something, and that which we love, we give ourselves over to it, we enter into it, we celebrate it. Now, something like porn, there's not a whole lot of like proclamation of that. Like, guess what I just did today? Because 
with something like that comes shame. We feel really ashamed, so we don't talk about it. That's part of the problem, is that we remain in the shadows, we remain in the darkness, we remain in kind of a circle of lies, and we never really get find freedom. But again, I would just simply say this. The template is this. You worship your way into these cycles, you have to worship your way out of these cycles. You worship your way in, loving the human body, you worship your way out by loving the creator of the human body more than the human body itself, and repenting from love for the human body first and foremost. And then God, God reorders it. It's a reordering of worship. You guys, you guys following so far? Are you guys ready for me to go on to another um, uh, example? All right, I will. Um, next one is, 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 is it's different example. It might still have some level of, of gravity and weightiness. But it's, but it's an issue of like, like money. So um, the opposite of generosity would be what? I'll let you guys use the word. Opposite of generosity would be what word would be used? Stinginess, that's the word I'm looking for. Did somebody say anything else? Any other good words out there? Selfishness. Selfishness. Okay, selfishness, stinginess. So let's say, let's take stinginess. The reality is that oftentimes uh, people, we, we become stingy because we look at money as this means that we have, that we need money because money provides a sense of security. We have a sense of security as long as we have money. Or, or if we don't have money, we dream of having money because we believe, we believe the lie, that's what it is, it's a lie, that if we have money, we will also obtain security. Right, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you are somebody in this room that actually has money, do you feel secure having money? And the answer is no, because it's like you need a little bit more. You need a little bit more, or you need to protect the stuff that you have. Um, and, and the reality is it never provides this elusive desire for security because it, it's, you cannot get security with, with money. So here's what happens is when we talk about being generous, the idea of being generous with your money, the idea of taking this green stuff and giving it away boldly, gladly, courageously to people that have needs or to the church or the mission of what God's doing, uh, it can, can oftentimes be met with a sense of like, ah, like you begin to cramp up. There's a sense of like, ah, oh, I'm starting to get shingles. And I don't know where this came from because there's a sense of anxiety. Of like, and the reality it boils down to is it, that we are actually worshipers of money. We worship money. We truly believe that money is the source of my security. If I have money, it's a source of my hope. If I have money, it's a source of providing some sense of protection. And if I don't have money, if there's a fear of it somehow going away or evaporating or being lost, then I melt into anxiety because we believe the lie that money really is what is going to give me life. This is what the Bible describes as it's idolatry. It's, it's, it's worship of something other than God. So again, this is a worship issue. It's a worship issue. All of our lives can be described, defined by worship issues. I think it was John, John Maxwell, the great you know, like a leadership guru, who says everything rises and falls on leadership. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, especially in the corporation. But I would take it a step further and say, actually, everything rises and falls on worship. Like who you worship, who you devote your love who you celebrate in, what you celebrate, and what you promote and proclaim is, is ultimately going to define the type of person you're going to be and the type of life that you're going to have, eternal life or eternal death. In other words, there's very real consequences that are attached to who or what you worship. And so 
Worship's a big issue. It's a really big issue. So let's jump in to kind of looking at this first and foremost. We already looked at kind of the idea of personal worship. Again, I want to move on from that. I really want to focus on this final one and then wrap this up with some closing thoughts. I want to look at the concept of corporate worship. And this is what I really want to focus on. It's for us to be a community of Jesus people here on the Central Coast, um, really seeking to embody and live out the gospel. Um, we, we are worshipers, first and foremost. Like, what we worship. And it, it is about personal, but it is about how we view this living God and our response to him. But it also will inform how we act as a community of people. Um, and this is where I want to describe the idea of corporate worship. So there's three things I really want to focus on and kind of ask the question or act, you know, kind of look at this concept. That in corporate or public or gathered worship, the way I would think about this, like we are doing one of three things, or, or all three things that we're going to be looking at. So when we gather, we first and foremost, we're proclaiming the praises of God's glory. God's glory. So as we gather as a community of Jesus people that are in our own lives, seeking to worship God, seeking to find our lives in a right relationship with, with God, um, when we gather together as a community, we are first and foremost proclaiming the praises of his glory. Here's what Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you know anything about this uh, intro sentence into the book of Ephesians, it's like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 down to verse 14 uh, is, is like the longest ongoing sentence in the entire Bible. Like punctuation, there is none. There are, there are no periods, no, no punctuation at all. Paul literally is going crazy, and he's just writing nonstop with no punctuation, this ongoing, on-running sentence. But Paul has a reason for that, because he's absolutely blown away by the power and the glory and the greatness of Jesus, and how Jesus has shown his power and love and grace upon God's people. So he uses this phrase three times in this passage. He says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Three times Paul used that. So this is the general theme that Paul is basically saying. Now, one other final thing is, to whom is Paul writing? To the very beginning, we're told, he says, to the saints in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city, very, very large city back in the day. Uh, it was a Roman colony, very large Roman colony. And so uh, Paul's writing to the saints, Christians, followers of Jesus, people that gather, and they're, they're no doubt gathered. So the way this typically would have gone down is that they would have received this letter from the Apostle Paul, and they would have gathered, and they would have had someone read it, because most people back in those days were illiterate. So you'd find somebody that would actually, uh, literate, who can read, who would sit down and read it. Like, hey, this is from the Apostle Paul. Everybody ready? And they would start reading it. And as they would read it, they would just unpack the reality of what Paul is saying, the richness of this apostolic reality. So here's what he's going to begin to describe. He says, to the saints in Ephesus. Again, they're gathered as this community of worshipers, he says, to the praise of, the glo- of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. Just pause for a second and think about this. He says, we have, we have received this inheritance. It's in Jesus. So Paul's reminding this community of Jesus people, look, you guys, we have this inheritance. Now, in the context of first century Jewish follower, or uh, Jesus people, some of these people were actually having their land confiscated, like Right of Hebrews tells us that some of you guys are going through gnarly, gnarly persecution. You are having your, your land confiscated. You're having your wives taken away. Things are being undone by the culture at large around you. You are literally losing stuff for the name of Jesus. So imagine in the context of potentially actually losing your livelihood to hear this phrase, you have an inheritance in Jesus. So what's this inheritance? I mean, this is amazing. So think about this. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask you, how many of you actually have a rich grandma, rich uncle, rich somebody, rich mom or dad, that one of these days, as soon as they like, 
are in the grave, you become like a spring-loaded rich person, right? Again, no show of hands. But how amazing would that be? Like, how right would that be? I was, sometimes my wife and I talk about this. We're like, gosh, people have asked us, you know, how come you guys don't have a house yet? Like, buy a house, you know, like the typical American people. Because like, we'll, most of our friends, like, you know, they've, they've had a rich grandma or somebody in their family, like, hey, here's $50,000 for a down payment. Like, unfortunately, we just, we don't have that. We don't have, like, when my, when my parents are, are, are done, like, we don't have anything. Like, there's not going to, like, we're both kind of from poor families, is my point. Don't feel bad for me. This is a reality. The point is, is that it doesn't matter what type of background you're from. How much money your mom or dad or your grandma or what type of inheritance you have. The reality is, is that all of us in Christ have this inheritance. So what is that inheritance? Well, Jesus actually tells us. As he's given the Sermon on the Mount, he says to this broad group of people that have lost everything. These people that don't have anything. In other words, in society, you have the haves and the have-nots, right? right? You guys know that? You guys are aware of that? You have the haves and the have-nots, um, and again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you guys would just look at yourself and be like, I'm the have-not. Like, I don't have anything. You drive a junky car. You ride your bike. And you don't have much. Like, you hear friends that are, you know, going to scout coffee and drinking coffee, whatever. And you're just like, oh, I wish I could do that. Instead, I'm just cool with my 7-Eleven and all that. But, like, like they're the haves and the have-nots. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus is speaking to these people. says, look, the meek will inherit the earth. Do you realize how, like, subversive that statement is so let, let me ask this question today like right now in the world in 2016 who are the inheritors of this planet agribusiness monsanto um powerful corporations politicians the haves the donald trumps the bankers like like who who gets to take planet Earth and slice it up and say, that's mine. It's the haves. W- what about the rest of us? <laughs> this is what's so amazing. Jesus says, you want to know who can, who's actually going to inherit the Earth? The meek. Because I'm going to completely overthrow the order of the way things are. Because this is how it is. I'm king over all things, and I set it, and it will be done. It's amazing. And this is what Paul is saying. Is that Look, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, we have inheritance. Elsewhere, he says, that cannot be destroyed or corrupted or taken away or stolen. can't be lost. It's not like a bank account that's in a Swiss bank that somehow can actually be disrupted or stolen or hacked into. He's saying your inheritance can never, ever be hacked into or stolen or taken away. That's amazing. And that's why Paul is going to then go on to say to the praise of his glory. Praise God's beauty, God's glory for what he's done for us. And he goes on to say in verse 13, he says, in Jesus you also, when you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? He says, the praise of his glory. So again, first of all, when we gather together as a community of Jesus' people, when we, when we do this, when we unite, we, we as a church, we gather on Sunday mornings. Now, a lot of churches throughout the world, throughout 2,000 years of church history, have always, for the most part, gathered on a Sunday. Why? Usually in the morning. Not always and not always exclusively. It doesn't need to be in the morning. It could be in the afternoon. But we, most Christians, have always gathered on a Sunday. Why? Well, because it is the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. It's the first day of the week. It's the day in which we celebrate his resurrection. We are resurrection people. We are people that have been brought into this hope of resurrection. So we celebrate that on this day to remind ourselves, to recenter us, that this is who we are. We are resurrection 
people because of what Jesus has, has done for us. Again, there's some that might meet on different days of the week, which is, which is really fine. But at the end of the day, we, we gather, we meet. Why do we do that? First and foremost, we do this as opposed to just simply grabbing a podcast and hiking up a mountain. We do this because there's something powerful that when we gather, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. We do that collectively, gathered. Second thing that we see, uh, next slide, is, is a way of protestation against idolatry. Uh, injustice, and individualism. So some of you are like, what in the world does that all mean? It means this. All right, if what the kingdom of God is all about is about reordering our affection, our love towards God, reordering our ability to love others, the opposite of worship is idolatry. The opposite of love of neighbor is injustice. Why is there injustice in this world? People love money more than they love a little Syrian kid. Why is there sex trafficking in this world? Because people love sex and human body more than they do a little child's rights. Why is there abortion in this world? Because people love freedoms and abilities to do what they want instead of a child. Why? Injustice is in this world because we've chosen to love something other than our creator and those who bear his image. So, to rightly order those things would mean that as we engage in those things, as we worship God, as we bring our hearts and devote them together as a community of people, we are protesting idolatry. We are standing against idolatry and idolatrous ways. We are protesting injustice and saying, you know, we will love each other and as well as protesting individualism, which is kind of this problem that we have in our society where everybody just wants to do what's right in their own eyes and regardless of how it may impact or impede anybody else, we just simply do it other way. So as we gather as a community of people, we are literally, as we lift up our voices, as we take out our pen and our notebooks and our Bibles and we study and we engage and we serve one another, we are protesting uh, idolatry and injustice and individualism. Like the, I don't know how else to describe it other than it's just that's, it's this beautiful protestation against all these vices in our culture. And the final thing is that we're actually playing out the future in the now, in the present. So where do I get this from? I get this from actually the book of Revelation. Uh, there's lots of passages throughout the book of Revelation. I'll just kind of land on this one. That what we see is that in the book of Revelation is this picture that one day God is bringing all history to this climax. To this climax where one day he will overthrow earthly empires that are symbolized throughout the book of Revelation uh, with Babylon and all sorts of other earthly empires that have succeeded and call, uh, come down throughout history. That really the story is simple. Is that, that King Jesus, that as depicted by a lamb, it's the chief symbol of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And guess how he depicts all other empires? As the beast. It's this crazy comic book we call the book of Revelation. If it were to be like drawn out or hand drawn, it would look like a comic book. It'd be like a DC comic. But the idea is that somehow through the providence of God, this lamb figure is going to overthrow the beastly empires of this world. And guess what will happen? That all those that have been oppressed and crushed and ruined and destroyed and tempted and teased and uh, ultimately crushed and destroyed by the beastly empires who have trusted in this lamb will be gathered around the throne. They will be washed. So, so, so who's been tempted and crushed and ruined by the beastly empires? That's us. Every 
single one of us at some point in our life, perhaps even right this very moment, are believing a lie or have believed a lie that is part of this earthly empire, Babylon, destruction, that will ultimately lead us down a path of brokenness. But here's the hope. We have hope in God, that God comes to us not as this ravenous, angry, frustrated, grumpy old man, but he comes to us as this gentle, vulnerable lamb that is slain. He says, come, come to me. I'll wash you, I'll cleanse you, I'll carry your shame, carry your guilt, carry all these things that are part of your life that corrode you and have corrupted you, and then you will become part of me, part of my family. And so the image oftentimes reoccurring throughout the book of Revelation is that this, this host of people of all tribes, all nations, all color of skin, all social economic levels will be gathered together around the throne. And this is the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. I'll just read it. You can listen to it. I'm actually reading it to you out of the message. Um, I typically read out of the ESV, but I like the way this put it. And so just listen to it if you want to just listen to it. It says this, the water of life river flowed from the throne of God. So John is uh, seeing this vision of, of what will one day come. And he, again, he uses metaphors, pictures and whatnot to kind of spell out, point out these, these beautiful images of, of, uh, of what, he's, what he's seeing. He says, the water of life river flowed from the throne of God and the Lamb. Right down the middle of the street, the tree of life was planted on each side of the river The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Never again will anything be cursed. The throne of God and the Lamb is at the center. His servants will be gathered to offer God their service, their worship. The look on his face and their foreheads finally and fully mirroring the image of God. Love that. Love that. I think a lot of us, when we look in the mirror, we see something we don't like. We're dissatisfied with. We look at ourselves, we're aware of the fact that we are not who we wish we were. We look at ourselves oftentimes through someone else's Instagram account or Facebook feed and we think, I wish my life was better. I wish I had a better looking boyfriend, a better looking girlfriend, or a better husband, or a better wife, or I wish I had somebody in my life I can call my own. And we are discontent with our lives. And we are oftentimes looking for something, somebody, some way, some script, some narrative that will then breathe definition or identity into our lives. And all of these, all of these are scripts that are literally taken from the narrative of the beast and the beastly system of this world. That's what marketing is. It's marketing, communicating, promoting, for the most part, though there's you know, good redemptive forms of it as well, uh, for the most part, this narrative of this world that you are not complete as a human being until you purchase this pill or this plan or this whatever. And once you do, then you will be satisfied, then you'll be complete, but it never fully materializes. The book of Revelation promises that those that have associated their lives with the Lamb will be gathered on his throne. And so when we gather as a community, we're basically living in the present what the future will want to be like. And we are also gathering with thousands, perhaps millions of other people worldwide that are doing the very same thing. So the reality is, in much of modern day culture, because there's some that would fight back and say, well, come on, church is not just about Gathering together on a Sunday morning. You're absolutely right. It is not just about gathering together on a Sunday morning. But it's not less than that. It's not less than that. It's a way of proclaiming this is who we are. We are God's people. We need each other. We are washed 
by the blood of the Lamb. We are joining together in the present right now to hearken to, look forward to this one day glorious future in which we will be united, all nations, tribes, tongues, people around King Jesus. And we'll be made one. We'll be given life in a way that we've never even dreamed or thought about. And I love the way he describes this. He just simply says, and their foreheads finally fully mirroring the image of God. You know what that means? We will be glorious. We will be beautiful. I mean, think about that. I mean, C.S. Lewis, again, there's so much he writes about this. This is mind-blowing. But the images that kind of conjure up in your mind is that what we oftentimes look in ourselves and we find so much dissatisfaction is because we fail to see ourselves in light of the one who made us. We fail to see our neighbor, our spouse, or a good friend, or our family member, or our mom who failed us, or our dad who didn't do a good good job leading us. We look at them and we're frustrated, we're angry, because we fail to see them in light of what God is making them to become. This This is an invitation. It's always an invitation that God calls us to. And so I want to wrap this up. Really, at the end of the day, when we think about worship, it's about gathering together as a community, the way the church has done for 2,000 years. It's always done this. And again, it's really only a relatively past, you know, 50 or so or less years in which there's this modern-day crisis. You know, there's all sorts of articles on the Internet about how the church is losing its shape and losing its ground, and people no longer go to church. There's a whole community of people called the nuns. They don't have any type of affiliation, so there's none. And the reality is... Look, at the end of the day, God calls us to be a people. As we gather, as we unite, these are the things that are happening. These are the things that are taking place. There's something beautiful and powerful that takes place as we unite around God's people. Tim Keller kind of put it this way, and it's a great little summary. He's talking about worship. He says, good, skilled worshipers really are people. Uh, they're like sailors, and a sailor does not create the wind. He doesn't generate the wind. He just chases the storm. He, he knows how to trim his sail in such a way so that when the wind is blowing, he's, he's able to catch it. He's able to be taken with it. That's what worship is. We don't generate the worship. We don't gather to be entertained. We don't gather to make something up to create something. God is already doing something. God is already here. He's already been doing something. We're here to just simply trim our sails in such a way to catch the breath of his spirit to let it begin to inform and transform and give our lives substance and give our lives identity and remind us of the worth that God has imbued upon us because we simply bear his image in ourselves. So in closing, I want us to respond. And so we're going to do now. So I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we're going to invite you because the gospel is always about this invitation. It's about this God that says, come to me. No matter how broken you are, no matter how ruined you are, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how sinful you are, no matter how offensive you are in your life, to come to me, to bring to me all that you are and I'll remake you, I'll reshape you. The question that naturally comes from us is always, why should I trust this God? I don't trust a lot of people. I don't trust politicians. I definitely don't trust kings. If you're a king, I'm very highly suspicious of you. Why should I trust you? Because if you look at the story of Jesus, he's the only king, the only true king that truly says, come to me and I'll give you life. Every other false god that we trust in our lives, at some point it will fail you. At some point when it fails you, when you fail it, it will not forgive you. So if you take beauty as the ultimate thing in your life, you're like, I'm going to make beauty the ultimate pursuit of my life. And when you fail it, when you gain a few extra pounds and you are no longer beautiful in the standard of your own perceptions, 
There is no forgiveness that beauty God has to offer you. In fact, all it has is condemnation. You failed. You're fat. You're not pretty. You will never be appreciated or loved or affirmed by anybody because look at you. But Jesus, on the other hand, says, when you fail me, I'll forgive you. I'll wash you. I'll cleanse you. I'll receive you. Because he's the God that has come and sacrificed his life for us. Christianity is always about this invitation to turn our backs. The Bible is the word for this. Repent, to turn our backs from and upon these other false ideas and things that we've loved, celebrated, and promoted. To turn our hearts to the king and fully love him. To fully celebrate him, to fully promote him. It's always an invitation. So I want to invite you to that. So why don't we all stand? We're going to sing. I'm going to read you a prayer over the past few years. I've, I've come to value reading prayers on my own, and it's awesome, and it's kind of like poems that are really, really cool. And just, I want you to listen to this prayer. And just, just if you want, you can close your eyes. Um, it's an invitation for you to just receive. And, and as we worship, as we sing, um, uh, I'm going to give some space as soon as I'm done here reading this, just for silence, pure silence. And, and why? Why silence? Because the more I've kind of been thinking about life a lot lately is we have too much white noise going on around us. One of the reasons why, like, we get sucked into these stupid clickbaits. Watch these videos. Another video. We are constantly needing noise around us to keep us going because we're afraid. We're afraid of silence. That when it's silent, we're afraid we're going to get found out. We're afraid of being vulnerable in the midst of silence. I think the way to subvert that is to jump into the silence and just say, God, the space is yours. You speak to me, Spirit of God. Speak to me, the thoughts that are in your heart. Show me, God, things that you're wanting to reveal to me. Help me to be responsive and obedient to these things. I want to read this prayer, and we're just going to take a moment of silence. Just, just, and in that moment, my invitation to you is to just, if you want to put out your hands, it's fine. It's just a way of just saying, God, here I am. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, show me ways, areas of my life that you want to speak. What are the things that you're revealing that I want to respond to? So let me read this. Silence. We'll sing. Holy God, to whom we turn, we gladly and without reservation assert that you are the one who gives life. You are the one who hears our prayers. You're the one who turns our jungles of threat into peaceable zones of life. You're the one who has kept us since birth, who stands by us in our failure and our shame, who moves against our anxiety to make us free. You're the one who does not hide your face when we call, so we praise you, we worship you, we adore you, we yield our life over to you in glad thanksgiving. As an act of praise, we say yes to you and to your rule over us. We say yes, yes, amen, and amen. Let's just quiet our hearts before this God that's here, that's present, and just say yes to him. God, in the silence, we, we say yes to your spirit. At the same time, say no to the need for affirmation from Instagram likes, Facebook comments. 
from the endless stream of emails that affirm us in our busyness. In the silence, God, we just say yes. We say yes to the new name that you've given us. Yes to the white robes that signify our cleansing, our washing. Yes to the lamb that was slain for us. Holy Spirit, come. Flood our hearts with a sense of your presence. Wash us clean, God, from our loyalties to false gods. Turn our hearts to you.